Keep your gloves up, Chef. Keep your hands up. <laughs> Come on, Chef. Come on. So there we go. Daddy? Vanessa. Oh, oh, oh. Wait a minute, he's not on the dunk team. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Ladies and gentlemen, just returning from South Korea. Blackhawk helicopter crew chief, private first class Brandon Come on, Beltway Park, yeah. Man, you gotta be a special kind of hard not to get moved to that. Like at the end of service, we're praying. If you didn't get stirred by that, come down here, get prayer, okay? I mean, there is something moving about long-term military men and women coming home to their families. I, I know maybe it, there's the part of it is we, we can imagine it. We can for some reason, see, we, most of us have never had to sacrifice in that way, but we can at least imagine what it'd be like. So what I want to do is I want to ask a question that I have to demand you stay with me. Because if you don't stick with me, you are going to misinterpret the reason for the question and what I'm trying to say. So don't do this. As soon as I ask the question, don't get out your phone and start tweeting what a hard-hearted ogre I am, okay? Don't start formulating the script to your next TikTok video about what unmoved guy I am, okay? I just stick with me because there's something I think the Lord wants to show us that has not just to do with long-term deployed military personnel, but has to do with our regular lives. The question is, why is the return of long-deployed military men and women so moving? So think about it for a moment. This is not like days of old. You go back 30 and 40 years, and the only way there was connection while they were deployed was snail mail. And it would take weeks, if not months, to get a letter, to get a picture, to get something like that. You might have the occasional phone call that they can make, but it's not like that today. Most long-term military personnel stay in contact with their family almost daily. If not daily, almost daily. They have phone calls, they have apps. Now, I know that's not true for everyone, but most of the guys I talk to, they have regular contact through video chat and things such as that with their family. So with this technology that we have that is so good, why is the return of deployed persons so emotional, so joyful, so stirring, not just for those families, but for us? See, I get right now that in our rooms, at our North and our South campus, we have families who have persons that are deployed right now. They're separated from their family. And I know at our online campus right now, we have men and women who are deployed in various parts of our nations and deployed overseas who are sacrificing for the sake of freedom around the world. Just a side note, I think they deserve a round of applause. They deserve a shout of appreciation. We really do appreciate it. 
For you men and women that are serving overseas, I, I want you to know that in most places where um, the men and women of Dias serve, I, I have friends. I have fellow believers that I'm acquainted with at some level, and what you're doing matters. It matters more than just for our nation, though I know you're serving for our nation. You're doing some things for the world that are beneficial, and we do appreciate it. I know that having deployed families and deployed men and women among us right now, I know what's going on inside of you. When I ask the question, why is it so moving, why is it so stirring, when you get to have regular contact with your loved ones via technology, you're going, it's not the same. A video chat just isn't the same. A phone call just isn't the same. Technological connection isn't anywhere close to the same as being in person. By the way, I agree. In fact, I bet all of us agree. Because at the first of the pandemic, you remember, we were all jumping in on Zoom and we thought Zoom was the wave of the future. Then a thing called Zoom fatigue happened. And it wasn't just fatigue that came from being on Zoom too much. It just got tired of doing stuff via video chat because we discovered the technological connection is not the same as in-person connection. We all get it. The question is, why? With the advancement of technology, I mean, you've got fast internet these days. You've got high-definition cameras that we are watching each other on. Why is technological connection not the same as in-person connection? The answer I believe we have the opportunity to really, really get. As humans, we were created. We were designed for, I want you to hear this word, for presence. Presence with one another in person, but not just presence with one another, presence with God. This isn't a new thing. 75 to 100 years ago, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer wrote, the spirit of restlessness. Breaking across the sea of humanity testifies to that truth. Isn't it interesting that someone who would write almost a century ago would talk about the same thing we're talking about? We're talking about restlessness. Restlessness is not a new thing in, into the world that come as a part of having cell phones and having all the activities that we have today. Restlessness has been part of the human condition. Even in what we might call simpler times, people struggled entering into the rest of God. Why? Tozer continues, our whole purpose as created beings is to utilize our time delighting in the, notice the phrase, manifest presence of our creator. As humans, we were created. We were designed for presence. Somebody say presence. Presence with one another and presence with God. And I know right now your mind is starting to motor and you're thinking, man, you're going on time to the weird mystical side. Hear me, there is a mystical side to our faith, but just in case you think I'm just preaching off of a quote of a preacher from days gone by, I want you to open your Bible. Because this idea, believe it or not, is found throughout the scripture. We're in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus, the 33rd chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in our physical locations, either underneath the chair in front of you or underneath your chair in the risers. We're on page 73. Exodus 33. Now, as you find the passage, and I want you to look at it because I would encourage you to read it this week. Let me give you the setting. Moses is interacting with God in Exodus 33. Not too many months prior, so it seems, God has shown up to Moses in a burning bush that would not be consumed. He sent Moses to the land of Egypt to lead the children of Israel. And God has worked in a powerful way. We know about the 10 plagues from the movies and things like that. That has happened in recent days. It was not too long from this event that Israel was backed up against the Red Sea. 
The armies of Pharaoh were coming against them. And God parted the waters of the Red Sea. They walked around. They walked across on a dry seabed. And then when the armies of Pharaoh tried to follow them to bring them back into slavery, God swallowed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Immediately prior to Exodus 33, God had Moses come up on the mountain again, Mount Sinai. And he was up there for 40 days. Now, I understand that 40 days is a long period of time with no communication from your leader, but remember what they've experienced up to this point. They've seen the plagues and the hand of God against Egypt. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen God provide food for them every day in the wilderness. They just go out and there will be this bread-like substance called manna. And when they got tired of manna and kind of grumbled, God also sent quail to them. When they came to their first water source in the desert, it was bitter, but God had Moses throw a stick in there and turn the bitter water into good water. They seen water come from a rock. I'm telling you, Israel, in a short period of time, has seen the power of God, probably like no other people have seen the power of God in a short period of time. Yet, when Moses is gone for 40 days, they begin to struggle. It should serve as a warning to us that even when we've seen God move powerfully, like men at boot camp, that there is an enemy that wants to come against everything God has been doing. That happened to Israel. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, this 40-day period, they gathered Aaron and said, come make gods for us who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So all of a sudden, in a mere 40 days, they go from walking joyfully in the power of God to struggling, asking Aaron to create a new set of gods, little g. And out come the infamous golden calf, this struggle that goes on for Israel for a long period of time who was designed to either add to or replace the God who had worked so powerfully to set them free. God decided from this event that he was going to destroy all of Israel and start over with Moses. And Moses interceded on behalf of the Jewish people and God relented. He still punished them and it was pretty severe, but he didn't utterly destroy them. Our text, Exodus 33, starts immediately after Moses' intercession on behalf of the people of Israel. Moses again, is again before God and the God said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, and a lot of other ites in the land, right? Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now I want you to think about this. From what we can see from Moses' life, there is one thing Moses wanted. Moses wanted to see the children of Israel set free from Egyptian captivity and established in the land of promise, this land known in the Old Testament as the land of rest. You may remember from the movies that Moses was born a Jewish slave, but he ends up through a series of events being raised as a son of Pharaoh. He, he is raised in the royal palace. But when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that Israel would understand what was going on, that God was giving them salvation. How? by his hand, but they did not understand. They rejected it. Moses, so desired to see Israel free, 
that he risked his own life against an Egyptian soldier and then risked his position in the royal palace to set them free. He ends up, because Israel says no to him, he ends up fleeing Egypt and for the next 40 years, he lives as a shepherd in the wilderness because the Jewish people didn't respond to him. Now, 40 years after that initial desire, 40 years of waiting, God has worked so powerfully. Now God says, I'm gonna give you the resource to fulfill the greatest desire in your life. Think about that. Most of us right now have one thing that we really want God to do in our lives. And probably for most of us, it's a noble thing. What Moses desired was a great, noble, spiritual thing. And God said, hey, I'm gonna give you an angel. That angel is gonna go with you and it's gonna establish you in the land. You're gonna drive out all the people by that power. You'll be okay. You guys go and do it. If you were Moses, what would be your answer? Sign me up. Like, yeah, all right, God, I've been waiting for this for 40 years, four decades I've been praying for this. Absolutely, let's do this. Moses said, no. Look down at verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, if your, see the word? If your presence does not go with me, don't bring me up from here. Moses turned down God's offer of power. He turned down God's offer to do the one thing that he wanted most in life. And what Moses said is, I'd rather stay here in the desert and be with you than have your power to go do the things that you've placed deep inside of me. See, God, more than we need a land, more than we need a resource of power for a moment, we need you. Am I the only one who finds himself deeply challenged by that? Something had shifted inside of Moses. Something had moved that I think we've got to grab hold of. Moses had gained an understanding of something that I think is one of the keys of us entering into the life that you and I want to have. We need God's presence more than we need his power. I mean, come on. In many ways, the offer made to Moses is what you and I wish God would do for us. In our faith journey, a lot of times what we functionally want is this. We want God to work powerfully in areas that I can't, cannot control, that I can't take care of, and the rest of the time, you just kind of leave me alone. I'll do my thing the rest of the time, but God, when I need you, I need you to work powerfully in this way. But Moses knew that he, Moses knew that the people of Israel needed more than a season of power. They needed his presence. Why? As humans, we are designed for presence. You go back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, before sin, lived completely in the presence of God. By the way, move forward in time, the kingdom of God is fully established, and we are living, ultimately we're supposed to be in the heavenly kingdom. Guess what the most wonderful thing about heaven's gonna be? Not the only wonderful thing, but the most wonderful thing is gonna be the ongoing presence of God. After Adam and Eve sinned, notice what happened. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God was coming near, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
the root consequence of sin, the foundational issue we all face that we have to, through Jesus, overcome is hiding from the very thing we need the most. See, we think we need power, but what we really need more than we need power is we need his presence. Verse 16 goes on to explain it. Moses said, for how, if your presence doesn't go with us, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your being with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is saying, our identity, who I am, tied to you. Whose I am, where I am, tied to you. What I have is ultimately tied to you. What I can do is ultimately tied to you. We need you, God. Our purpose will not be fulfilled if you are not among us. We will not be able to do the things you've called us to do if you are not among us. If you will not go with us into the land of promise, I vote we stay here. Right here with you. We don't need your land. We don't need your power. We don't even need your promises. We need you. Hear me, Moses had grabbed onto something. It's foundational in our faith journey. That which we ultimately long for, it's what our hearts ache for, a life of rest is found ultimately in his presence. Guys, it is all over scripture. I challenge you to start looking up verses on presence and you're gonna find them all over the place. Like Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. We need his power, his presence more than we need his power. And I understand right now where our minds are going. There's a little bit of difficulty to the Western, hyperlogical, hyperrational world in which we live. And the difficulty is in definition, because you're beginning to ask, okay, David, if we need this, what does his presence look like? How do we get into his presence? What does it mean to be in his presence? See, biblically, we know this. We know a thing that we call omnipresence. God is everywhere all the time. He is not bound by time. He's not bound by space. He is among us right now, but he's also on the other side of the world. He's also in the future. He's also in the past. God is omnipresent. We know that at the intellectual mind level. But there are times, listen to me, there are moments that I am to feel, that I am to experience his presence. Those who came before us in the faith called it the manifest presence of God. This means the one who is always there all the time gives us an ability to know he's there to go beyond the factual level to the experiential level and to feel his presence. As Tozer said, manifest presence is both intangible and indescribable. Some try explaining it, but only those with personal intimate knowledge of God's presence can truly understand. Some things rise above explanation. Listen to me, some things rise above human definition and human understanding, and this is one. I understand the struggle we find ourselves in. Listen to me, we have been taught often in the church to be fearful of experience because experience can lead us astray. Listen to me, absolutely true. Is every spiritual experience, every emotive experience, is it from God, do this? No, there is an enemy, the enemy called Satan. He is a accuser, he is a deceiver. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. So absolutely, we can be led astray in experience. That is true. So what do we do? We discern. We discern by what? We discern by the truth of the word of God. What we don't do is we don't overreact. 
Many of us will say, well, I can be led astray by experience. We love logic and rationale and the mind and knowledge in the West so much. Anyway, we're just going to go all the way and say, we're not going to do experience whatsoever. And we miss out on so much that God has for us. The answer is not to spurn all the experience, but to be discerning of all experience by the truth of God, truth found in God's word. Amen? But I'm afraid we've rationalized to the point that we spurn the experience. And when the scripture says, draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. We think that's somehow just intellectual. Come into my presence with singing. And we somehow just think it's just something of the mind. And Jesus said, hey, if you're weary and burdened, anybody there? Anybody anxious and depressed? Overwhelmed? Come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Shunning even the possibility of moments of his presence is keeping us from that which we long for. It is the essence of sin, hiding from that which we most want. Listen to me. We are creatures of experience. Everything else in our world proves it. We know that to really grab hold of something, you've got to experience. Experience in many ways is inexplicable. Like this right here. I'll show you a picture of this. Take a look at it. What is it? It's not that hard a question. It is the Grand Canyon, right? You see a picture of the Grand Canyon? It's a great, great, great question right there. You've seen it? You don't need to go. Believe you, why would you go if you've already seen it? Or even more, you can get on the Discovery Channel and they do this great documentary. Man, they have 4K cameras, they have drones, they're flying all through it. You've got your new 100-inch TV because apparently bigger and TV is better and you're watching it and boom, it's all great. Why do I need to go? I've seen it. But I promise you this, you go and you stand on the edge and you will be drawn to a place of utter silence at the awe of the majesty of what God has done with merely a spoken word. And you will not be able to explain it. You will not be able to adequately tell somebody what you saw. You'll just look at them and say, hey, you just got to go. You have to experience it. Because there are some things in life that are supposed to be experienced. That's why when you can watch good ball games on TV, you still want to go to the stadium. I remember the first time I went to Israel. I didn't really want to go to Israel. The irony being I've been like a lot of times now. Uh, I didn't need to go to Israel. People told me, hey, you need to go to Israel. You'll be, you'll be amazing what you encounter. And I, at that juncture, man, I was just pretty left-brained. It's like, man, I've studied. I've done archaeological studies. I've done biblical background studies. I know the facts and knowledge about all the stuff that's there. But we started doing ministry in Israel. I'll tell you later about why we do that. And I remember going for the first time. And it was really strange. I'd be in places that I knew in my mind everything about them or a lot of things about them but there would be a kind of an encounter with God. Like I found myself feeling at home. Not like I wanted to move there. It was during the second intifada. I mean, the people were blowing people up there and I didn't want to live there at all, but I was home. I would get on the Temple Mount and I think Abraham was likely up here willing to offer his son up to God. And right here, God stopped him. And I on the steps of the temple mount and I thought Jesus walked up these steps Jesus walked here and there was this thing of encounter I, I wish I could explain it to you but it's beyond that but we get it 
Because a lot of our humanity is like that. Like if you're a parent, or someday if you are a parent, at some point your kid is going to ask you this question, how do I know when I'm in love? Have you ever tried to answer that? How do I know when I'm in love? My daughter asked me that question. I looked at her and said, you'll know you're in love when I tell you you can be in love, okay? (laughs) Every dad said, amen, absolutely right. Seriously, when your kids ask what love is and what it looks like, you try to give them a definition. I hope you do. I hope you point them to God because he is the essence of love and I hope you try to describe from God what we see, that it's a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. It's a willingness to be committed, even in seasons that you don't have that feeling. But in the end, you know what we all tell our kids? You'll know when you're in love. And inside what we're saying is, I'll be able to tell when you're in love. We'll know when that feeling exists, right? There is an experiential side of love that supersedes definition. The only way you really know love is to love and then to grow in that love. The same is true of the presence of God. Like I can tell you various things about the presence of God. Like the presence is an inner awareness of his nearness that I know and even experience his closeness in life. And that is true, but it's far more than that. At some level, just like love, the presence of God has to be experienced and grown in like that. See, like every relationship, so I want you to hear me. Like every relationship, we are meant to experience that relationship, not just at an intellectual, not at just a factual level, we're supposed to experience it at a hard level, heart level. Our faith journey isn't just knowing about God. Our faith journey is knowing God. The Bible says that one day we will see him face to face. We will know him even as we are fully known. And we know that's gonna happen that day in heaven. But I also know that when I pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven, that things of heaven are supposed to become more real on planet earth. I won't totally have it on this earth. I'll only have it totally when I'm in heaven, but I can have more of it. I'm supposed to know him face to face. I'm supposed to know him more and more, even as I am fully known. See, we are called to have a relationship with him, to come near to him, to learn to hear his voice, to commune with him, to love him, not just with our mind, not just with our actions, but with our heart and with our soul. Moses got that so deep within him that he was willing to sacrifice that which he had ached for for 40 years. God said, I'm gonna give you the power you want to accomplish what it is you need to do. And he said, no, if your presence will not go, we stay here. What would it look like if we got that reality in us? We need God's presence, listen to me, more than we need his power, but it doesn't just happen. What we see in Moses is that presence comes as a result of priority in our lives. Moses made presence his highest priority. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that he could just fit in in his life sometime as just an add-on. When I was a young parent, I had a mentor. And he told me that in my life of parenting, I needed to have lots of quality time with my kids. You need quality moments with your kids. And I thought, awesome, I want quality moments with my kids. How do I get quality moments? And he started chuckling and he said, quantity of moments. He said, you spend a lot of time with your kids and in the midst of a lot of time with your kids, you have moments. Moments where you're close. Moments where you really connect. I said, are all the moments like that? He went, no. I said, what are most of them like? He said, some of them are work. Some of them are a little tiring. But the moments of quality are so great that all the other moments are worth it. That's true 
Not just the relationship with our kids. It's true with other relationships. Your marriage. Come on. Is every date you have in marriage a home run? Guys, if I were you right now, I would be very still, okay? Because what you really need to say, baby, every time I'm alone with you, it is a home run, right? We know better. We know that you have to have date after date after date, but sometimes among those dates, among those trips, among those activities, in the midst of the quantity of time we make in the prioritization of that relationship, we're gonna have those moments of quality. The same is true in our relationship with God. The more quantity of time we spend drawing near to him, worshiping, serving with him, praying, engaging his words, the more times of his presence we are going to encounter. Reality is, every time you come to church and you lift your hands and worship doesn't mean you're gonna have an encounter. Every time you get up early and you have that quiet time, you're reading your scripture, you're praying, you're doing the things you're supposed to do, it doesn't mean you're gonna have an encounter. But I'm telling you, the more often you do that, the more often you'll take him at his word, the more often you will draw near to him. The more we obey and enjoy Jesus in ministry, the more we say yes to his invitation to draw near, the more we will encounter the manifest presence of God because we've made it a priority. And I'm telling you, as Moses, we're gonna learn when you made it the priority and you taste it. You taste it. You want to draw near. Presence also requires pleasure. God's pleasure. Let me explain. The Lord said to Moses, when Moses says, I need your presence, he said, this very thing that you have spoken, I'll do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. How did Moses find favor? He obeyed. See, I think sometimes we can swing the pendulum. We can become convinced that through Jesus Christ we're a child of God. In the words of our author, we have an A-plus on our report card before we do anything. And then we can begin to think, well, what I do doesn't really matter. I'm already a child of God. I've already got an A-plus. I can just live any way I want to live. Listen to me. Once we are God's child in Jesus, that relationship is secure. There's nothing you can do to change it. But what we do still matters, not because of our relationship, but because of our fellowship. I used to tell my kids, there's nothing you can do to make me quit loving you. It is an impossibility for you. I will always love you. You will always be my child. And I would sometimes ask them, is there anything you can do to make daddy quit loving you? They got tired of it. No, there's nothing. But then I'd ask, will daddy always like you? They go, no. When won't daddy like you? Usually it's in the moments of rebellion. What happens? When you have those moments of friction, those moments of rebellion with your kids, it's not that their status, their relationship has changed. They're still your child, but the nature of your fellowship, if I may, the nature of your closeness is far more difficult in life. Sin, rebellion, affects our fellowship. Our closeness with God, one of the great benefits of obedience, not perfection, but obedience is presence. Final thing I want you to hear. I see it throughout the story of Moses. Praise is always the beginning place for presence. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. There you go right there. Some of you who are worried you don't sing well, that's awesome, joyful noise. <laughs> Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with what? Singing. All the time I have people come visit Bellway Park. I said, man, it was great to be at your church, love that. It is probably the most awesome preaching I've ever heard in my life. You guys are duds today, okay? That was funny. And as a chance to encourage me, you failed on all accounts, but that's okay. They'll say, but y'all sing a lot. 
And y'all are pretty intense when you sing. Why do you sing so much? And why are you so intense? I want his presence. I want to draw near to him. We want to experience his presence. But it isn't just true in corporate worship. When you're by yourself, Jesus said, when you pray, make sure you start like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, magnificent, glorious is your name. His praise is the beginning place for presence. Are you hearing it? More than we know, we need presence. We think we need power. We need his presence. That's the invitation Jesus extended to us. I was thinking this morning about when I was young. The place I felt most at rest was in my dad's lap. I think of Saturday nights. Because Saturday nights, this was the routine. Is that I would take a bath. And it was one night I would love taking a bath. Because dad would start cooking popcorn. And then after I took my bath and popcorn, he would have the popcorn ready and I would go sit in his lap in his chair and we would watch the wrestling matches. Don't judge us. That was way back in the day. Wrestling was real back then, not the fake stuff we have today. When I think of being at rest, I think of that place. Is that not what the scripture invites us to? For you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again unto fear, but the spirit of adoption as children by which we cry, Abba, Father. Crawl into his lap. What if we could just live more and more? What if, in the words of our author, chair one is like the lap of the Father? And there you feel the security. You feel it. The anxiety washes away. The concerns wash away. Nothing has to be said. That's what Jesus invited to. See, one of the reasons we're restless is we've minimized the importance of presence. We've shunned the experience in the hyper-rational West. And I'm not telling you to become all experiential and forget about facts and truth and discernment. That's all in the book. We do that. But we don't need to overreact to experience. We need to come to him. If you're weary and burdened, come to me. Come sit in my lap. And you will find what? Rest. Let's do this. North-South Campus online. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. What we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to enter into a time of worship. And I just invite you to engage. There's communion around our physical locations. If you're in an online family, you might find some elements of communion if you want it. I just invite you to worship. I invite, I, I really implore you, we're not finished. We've set aside the remainder of our time together to enter his presence with singing. Take advantage of the time, please, please. Especially if you have kids, don't leave and go get your kids. The reason is your kids are involved in ministry and man, you go get them, you interrupt the ministry to all the other kids. Let's just take advantage of the time you're here. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. It's going to, these are going to be really quick. You need grace to be open to experience the presence of God. You would just say, naturally, I've not been prone to that. And I just want to agree. I want to be open to experiencing the presence of God. 
And I know you're sitting there saying, David, I have no idea what that means. Yeah. I wish I could tell you, but I can tell you it's worth it. It's worth it. And maybe you've just been one of those to think, I'm supposed to stay away from all experience. I just want you to be open to some. Discerning by the truth of God's word. But I want you to be open to encounters with God. If you would say, David, I want grace to be open to encountering God, to come into his presence, to know the fullness of joy in his presence. God, I need grace to be open to your presence. Raise your hand right now and say, God, I need grace for that. Yeah. If you raised your hand to that, would you ask God for grace and courage to prioritize the things that will help come into his presence? Prioritize worship. Prioritize service. You'd be amazed how you meet Jesus when you serve other people in his name. Prioritize private times in the word. I wish I could tell you every time you read the Bible you have an encounter. I mean, you always hear God, but there's moments in his word that I've encountered him so deeply. But it takes priority. It takes regularity. It takes quantity. And if you say, God, I want to have a priority of your presence like Moses of old, give me grace to do that more in my life. Raise your hand up right now. Yeah. Last thing. The only way you come into the presence of God is through Jesus. You have to be his. You have to be his child. And the only way you become his child is giving your life to him and becoming his follower. And I just want to implore you, if you've never become a follower of Jesus, you can do so today. You just say yes. Some of you have been thinking about it. You've been contemplating it. You say yes to become his today. If you do it just right now, say, Jesus, yes. I want to be your follower. After the service, you come down and talk to one of our prayer partners. You saw the testimony of it in our baptisms this weekend, 20 across all of our services this morning. Last week, I think we had 55 or 56 men be baptized as a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. We're seeing God's changing people's lives. You just say yes to him right now. You come down. Yeah, we're going to ask you to be baptized to make that confession. But you just say yes to him. Be his. Get that relationship right. Father, I just ask that we as your people would have a grace to come into your presence this morning. Open our hearts. Whatever it is you need to do, we just say we need you. We want you, Jesus. I'd like to say that more than anything else, I want you. I don't know that I can say that with integrity, but I want to want that, Lord. I believe, but I need help in my unbelief as a man of old prayed. And I think we're all there. Father, would you take us on a journey like you did Moses of old, that more than we need promises, more than we need power, we need your presence. And let us be a people who draw near to you. We receive your invitation this morning to draw near to you through Jesus. We don't come of our own accord. We don't come because we've earned it. We come because of Jesus. It's in his name we come, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Online, South Campus, let's stand and let's give worship to our God this morning.